As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Yo, I'm comfortable talking to Mark Alford. He don't make me feel like I gotta kneel at a dark altar. His colleagues are cool, things are jolly and smooth. Anything else, it'll be part stupid and part awkward. Bob Kendrick is the president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City, Missouri. He loves baseball, dresses to kill, and gives a mean personal tour of his home away from home. I got comfortable with Bob on a private personal tour, and believe me, it was a home run. All right, we're now inside the uh, Negro Leagues Baseball Museum and the Jazz uh, History Museum, yeah. and Bob Kendricks. Mark, is always good, good to, to see you. Man, it's great to see you, and thank you for coming by. And you know, as you mentioned, we've walked into what we call formally the museums at 18th and Vine features two very unique cultural institutions on the one roof, yeah. which is certainly unique to Kansas City. There's not another city that can boast having two museums of this magnitude under one How roof. How many square feet do you have here? We've got about 10,000 square feet of exhibit wow. space, and, and Jazz Museum is pretty much similar. And of course, when we opened the museum, this, this museum in 1997, we thought we had a lot of space. Yeah. We don't. We've pretty much tapped out of space, which is one of the reasons why we've set our sight in terms of expanding our operations into the to where? Purcell YMCA. Oh, yeah. The when, birthplace of the Negro cool. Leagues, which will, co of course, become the building named after our friend. So will you leave this Neal. space? And no. No, there are no plans to leave this space. It is, mm -hmm. it is strictly an expansion gotcha. of our operations because, again, we've tapped out of space. There's still so many stories that need to be told. As you walk in here, there's a huge event space. Yes. I've emceed a lot of events in here, yeah. and it is hopping when you have an event. It, it really is. It, it lends itself beautifully to after-hour events. And, you know, Mark, that's one of the ways in which we've gotten a lot of people who might not have come down to 18th and the Vine to experience these museums, but their companies have had after-hour events. They've been introduced to the museums through those means, and ultimately they end up right. coming back with their families to experience what everybody comes into town so excited about. When you first walk in, you see a huge display that says the Horse M. Peterson the Third Visitor Center. Yes. And what are we seeing here? Well, you're seeing some memorabilia and artifacts that kind of set the stage and tone for the spirit of 18th and Vine, mm -hmm. what it was like. 18th and Vine was thriving. It was the... We're talking the 40s, 50s? And even before that, yeah. going way back, because it was a segregated community, of mm -hmm. course. And, and, but what segregation did was it forced ownership. And so 18th and Vine, like a lot of urban areas, were thriving because it was almost mandated that you have these black-owned businesses so that you could provide basic services for a community that otherwise couldn't get them. But you could also track, Mark, wherever you had successful black baseball, mm -hmm. you had thriving black economies. Mm -hmm. And so this gives, you, gives our guests a kind of understanding of some of the things and some of the businesses that were so prevalent in the African-American community at that time. Of course, the Kansas City Call still publishes, and people come in and see this old line of type, this old hot metal machine. Oh, yeah. And, and, and you know, they've never seen anything quite like that. 
but the Kensington Call, right up the street from us, still publishes a weekly paper, one of the oldest black weekly papers in the country, and uh, they're still doing it every week. Eric Wesson, one of the writers for that. Yes, Good absolutely. Guy. Uh huh. We see mm -hmm. some other um, instruments, a banjo here. Yeah, and, and of course, that that banjo belonged to Leroy Buscaberry. Yeah, man. You sounded like Buck O'Neill when you said that. <laughs> that gave me goosebumps. <laughs> but you're obviously, 18th and Vine yeah. also recognized worldwide for jazz. Yeah. For jazz. And so this became this cultural intersection where baseball and jazz connected. Well, let's do the uh, Negro Leagues Baseball Museum first. Absolutely. You want to? Yes, sir. Now, I remember coming in here. I hope it's not been that long since I've been in here for Buck O'Neill's... Um, Funeral. Yeah, that's, uh, that's wow. How long ago was that? That was 11 years 11 years which ago. Which is still hard to believe. I can't believe it's that been, it's been that 11 years since we yeah. lost Buck. Yeah, Buck died in, in, in well, and this year, Mark 18, he died in 2016, uh, 20, uh, I'm sorry, he died in 2006. Mm -hmm. and, and so, yeah, it is still hard to believe that it has been that long since Buck passed because, as you can well imagine, Everywhere I go, somebody has a Buck O'Neill Oh, yeah. And, and you know what, Mark? I never get tired of hearing it. <laughs> now, you just delight in hearing those stories, and you knew him well. And we, He had and, some great stories. And those of us who got to know Buck O'Neill, I truly believe that we are better because mm -hmm. we knew Buck. You know what? Um, I didn't know him as well as you did, of course, but the thing that inspired me about Buck and some other people in this community – who have passed, like Tony DePardo, was yes, yes. their positive oh, nature. Yeah. There's so much negative crap right now going on in yeah. America, and to hear somebody who's yeah. always positive, and I'm sure they had down points of in course. their life, but to have that positive, I mean, everything was good. Even if it wasn't good, everything it to was Buck was good, good. Because that was the thing that Buck talked about so often, is the fact that Everybody wanted him to tell them about the Negro Leagues the way they thought, that it was going to be sad and downtrodden, mm -hmm. but that was not Buck O'Neill. So Buck was the consummate glass half full yeah. kind of guy, where everybody <laughs> else was looking at it as half empty. And, and I tell people all the time, they ask me what I remember most about Buck, and there are so many wonderful things and so many great memories of our time together and traveling together. But the thing that stood out for me was that you always felt better leaving Buck That's true. than you did before you came to see him. Yeah. He just had that. Infectious. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And you well, just couldn't be way. sad. Well, I hope some of that rubbed off on me. Yeah. I think I was always I a people person. And my wife says that sometimes. She said, you know, you act just like Buck. Mm -hmm. And I said, that's the nicest thing yeah. you ever said to me. But he certainly was a tremendous mentor for me. When did you a meet great him friend. first? I met Buck first time in 1993. Okay. When I started volunteering here for the Negro Lakes Museum. So I started as did a volunteer. Did you grow up here? I grew up in Georgia. Really? Yeah, born and raised in Georgia, a small town called Crawfordville, Georgia. Okay. Crawfordville, Georgia is east of Atlanta, west of Augusta. And according to Buck, I'm the only person he ever met from Georgia that didn't claim Atlanta as home. <laughs> well, Atlanta's not home. I'm from Crawfordville, Georgia, a small rural town. Mark, it's about big as this museum, 500 people. And, uh, but I'm very proud of my small town. So how'd you roots. end up here? 
basketball scholarship to Park College at that time. Now, of course, it's Park, Park University. University. And didn't know a soul. Came out here sight unseen, chasing a basketball, yeah. and now I make my living in baseball. But, you know, <laughs> things uh, always has its own course. We never know what that course is going to be, and you just kind of follow the steps that are mapped out for you. We think we're in control of things, but more times than not, we really God's are. in control. God's in control. We know that. And, and, but I met Buck in 1993 when the museum just had this little one-room office at that time. And where I was, was working it? for the Kansas City Star, right on the corner of 18th and Vine, where, where, the, Blue where, the, where the Bayou on the Vine oh, restaurant, on the Vine. formerly okay. Danny's, on the south is. Side. Uh-huh. And that's where the museum had its offices, up on the third floor of the old Lincoln building. And they were going to debut a traveling exhibition in that storefront space where the restaurant is now. And so I'm working for the Kansas City Star in the Star's promotions department. Mm-hmm. So I drew the assignment of promoting the museum's first ever traveling exhibition. The star was going to dedicate some promotional space to support the effort as we did with a lot of different not-for-profit organizations at that time. And so we had some success with the project. We drew about 10,000 people in the month of August of 1993 to come see this traveling exhibition. One month, 10,000 people? 10,000 people. So it it was outstanding. And I think that gave all the folks who were involved with this project early on are a great belief that this could be a success. And so the success of that project prompted some of the officials here to ask me if I would consider joining the board of directors in a volunteer capacity. And then I did a lot of the marketing, PR, community relations, advertising things for the museum as a volunteer. And that's when I first mm-hmm. met Buck O'Neill. And I tell the story all the time. You know, when you met Buck, as I like to say, when you were bitten by the Buck bug, <laughs> it was all over. You just wanted to be on Buck's team. You saw that infectious mindset. Uh-huh. You saw the, the joy and the pride that he had had and wanting to build something that would stand the test of time so that these great athletes mm. would not be forgotten. I think in the final equation, that's what we all want. We oh, just yeah. want people to remember us. To leave a legacy. Yeah, to leave a legacy. And, and and you could see that passion and that fire that fueled him. And you just wanted to be on Buck's team. I had no idea that it would lead me down this road to mm. ultimately now trying to run this organization. So I go from volunteer to eventual president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. and um, Wow. Yeah, and they, they paid me to hang out with Buck O'Neill. Mm. I'd have done that for free. Now, you know, they That's ain't paid me much cool. now. They ain't paid me a whole <laughs> lot, but they, they paid me to hang out with Buck O'Neill, and I can't, you know, I, I can't imagine anything that has been as, as any mm. more impactful in my life than those years that I got a chance to spend with Buck. Well, Bob, we're now in yeah. the first room that you walk in yeah, when you, you come through the, the turnstiles. Here we go, the turnstiles right here. And, we're, and what are we seeing here? Well, you just walk into an old ballpark. Mm-hmm. And what we do is we introduce our guests to what the concept of a Negro Leagues are. Because there are a lot of people can't even fathom that there was this league called the Negro Leagues. Even though we know that there was a period of time in this country, segregation, right. horrible chapter in this country's history. But what's so special about the story is that out of segregation rose this wonderful story of triumph and conquest. And it's all based on one small, simple principle. You won't let me play with you. I'll just create a league of my own. And do it better in most cases. Well, and, in and some that cases. was the case, yeah. absolutely. And so here we introduce them to the Negro Leagues. We give them an understanding through this board, this, this visual board here that gives you all the cities that had Negro League franchises. 
So the orange represents the cities that had Negro League teams. Wow. The blue represents the teams that played in those cities. And so, as you can see, it was pretty expansive over a period of 40 years. How many total teams? Uh, nearly 100 by the time it was all said and done. But again, this goes from 1920 when the right. leagues were formed here in Kansas City until 1960 when the leagues officially mm. folded. And then the map gives you an indication of where those cities were clustered. And as you can well imagine, they were primarily east of the Mississippi River. Because of the railroads? The railroads and because of the migration of African Americans after the Civil gotcha. War. We left the South. Mm -hmm. And we were migrating to the Midwest and along that northern seaboard looking for, as I like to refer, industrialized opportunities, yeah. factory jobs. Right. Yeah, but that's also the rail line, too. And so this is where you had your largest concentration of huh. black folks that formed that primary fan base that supported black baseball. So there were very few teams. Yeah, five or in six in the South. South. Yeah. And the ma vast majority above the Mason Dixon line. Exactly. Exactly. Because That's, again, we migrated that direction. Right. Mm -hmm. And so Kansas City's team was as far west. And it was the far, farthest west team, and it was the Monarchs. The Monarchs, right? yes. St. Louis was as far west as Major League Baseball went. So if you lived on the western foremost half of the country, you didn't get to experience professional baseball unless it was through barnstorming or winter baseball. Barnstorming was what? Barnstorming in this case meant that they were taking baseball to towns that had never seen professional baseball. And the Negro Leaguers were heralded barnstormers. They took baseball into Canada. They were oftentimes the first Americans to play in many Spanish-speaking countries. Huh. Believe it or not, Mark, it was a touring team of Negro Leaguers who introduced professional baseball to the Japanese going all the way back to 1927. That's years. So the heritage for Asian players and a lot of Hispanic players south of our border, you can know to the Negro Leagues. To the Negro Leagues. They wow. helped make the game the global game that it is today. They never got credit for it. And quite frankly, the Negro Leagues didn't care what color you were. All they mm. cared was, can you play? Right. That's it. That was the only measure in their minds for trying to determine who could play in their league and who couldn't. Mm. They didn't see color. And as we talked about earlier this week here, they didn't see gender as there were women who played in the Negro Leagues. Uh, talk about that a little bit. We're going to get to that part of the display, but I know that's been in the news lately, uh, and especially with the Me Too movement. Absolutely. Uh, a lot of people are saying, hey, uh, what about women? Yeah. What about women in Major League uh, Baseball and the yeah. Negro Leagues? Well, in the Negro Leagues, they opened their doors to women in the 1950s. And even before that, in leadership roles as owners, led by Effa Manley. Effa Manley was the first woman to be nominated and inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. She and her husband Abe owned Newark Eagles, but it was Mrs. Manley who ran the day-to-day -day operations of that baseball team market, and she knew the base business of baseball mm -hmm. as well as any man. Great talent play for her. My dear friend, the late, great Monty Irvin, Larry Doby, who, of course, would integrate the American League just a few weeks after Jackie breaks the color barrier in the National League, Willie Wells, Leon Day, all in the National Baseball Hall of Fame, all played for Effa Manley's Newark Eagles. Hmm. And, and so she kind of She was the, the Marge Shots, but nicer. But nicer. <laughs> and, and, and more socially conscious, <laughs> for sure. And, and, but Effa was one of those pioneers. But then the three women who played, Tony Stone, mm -hmm. Connie Morgan, and Mamie Peanut Johnson, competed with and against the men in the 1950s in the Negro Leagues, with Tony Stone being the first female of professional baseball. You have to remember that, the black, that black women were excluded from the All-American Girls Professional League. 
that was created during the war when so many of the major leaguers were fighting and, and a lot of the Negro League players were fighting at that same time. And so black women were excluded from that league. If you might remember the great film, A League of Their Own. Oh, yeah. The one scene where the sister picks up the ball and fires yeah. it back to Gina Davis and everybody's looking like, damn. You know, <laughs> I think that was Penny Marshall's way ah. of letting people know that black women had been excluded. Now, Mamie Peanut Johnson was the only one of the three that played in the Negro Leagues that actually wanted to try out for the uh, Women's League. And, of course, she was denied. And... Several years before she passed away, the All-American Girl Professional League made her an honorary member of that team, uh-huh. you know, to try and make amends for, for that shameful period in, in history. And, and so Tony Stone was hired by the Indianapolis Clowns. Tony Stone takes the roster place of a legendary baseball player that you probably will know his name. Who? Hank Aaron. Oh, yeah. Hank Aaron was signed away from the Clowns in 1952 by the Boston Braves. And she took his place. The very next year, Tony Stone takes his place to fill that spot on the roster. She's an outstanding athlete. All three women were Hmm. outstanding athletes. Tony Stone and Connie Morgan were infielders. Mamie Peanut Johnson, a 5-foot, 3-inch pitcher with a strong right arm. Sadly, she just passed away in December of last year. Where did she live? Washington, D.C., and I was very honored to go to D.C. and speak at her funeral services because that would have closed that window on that little section uh, of Americana and baseball history. It's incumbent upon this museum not to allow that to happen. Many Peanut Johnson, Tony Stone, Connie Morgan, Effa Manley stories deserve to live on. If we Mm. don't tell them, who will? Yeah, who will? Yeah. All right, so we come in here, and this yeah. is the... Uh, this is the centerpiece. It's like you're looking behind home plate here, and we have all these statues yes. in bronze of different players, and who's out there on the field? This is what we call the Field of Legends, and it might be one of the most iconic displays, Mark, I think, in any museum anywhere in the world, and obviously I'm biased. And, of course, on the outside looking in is Obama. All the players represent statues that are of those who are in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. So Buck is our only one of collections of those athletes that's not in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. We all know that Buck O'Neill deserves to be in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. In this capacity, he's managing this great all-star team that we're assembling. So he's outside looking at. He's almost poetic. Yeah. Yeah, almost poetic. And so what we hoped would happen was that our visitors would come in, peer through this chicken wire. Uh-huh. Yeah, peer, peer through this chicken wire backstop, see this incredible display, and we hope it invokes that desire that I can't wait to get out there Can and we walk go among in? those statues. You do ultimately make your way out there, but here we segregate you from the field. Yeah, because I want to go in. Yeah, that's, that's exactly <laughs> what we wanted to happen, and we segregate you from the field because we wanted our visitors, particularly our young audience, to at least remotely experience what segregation was like. So in the case of these great athletes, knowing full well they were good enough to play in the major leagues, so close to it, yet so far from it. So from most vantage points in the museum, you can see the field, but you Uh can't get to it. Now where did they play, the Monarchs? They, They played at 22nd and Brooklyn, right up the hill from Arthur Bryant's. Okay. At Old Municipal Stadium. That municipal was, yeah. Stadium. But before then, it was Mulebach Field and some other names. Um, so uh, when the Monarchs played, was it a segregated audience that watched them, or did whites and all colors come? Everybody came. And not only did they come, we sat together. Really? Yeah, we sat together. Now, at those major league games, we were oftentimes separated by this, a chicken, chicken wire, wire barrier, which is why we use chicken wire to separate wow. our visitors from the centerpiece of our exhibition. At major league games, we 
blacks would be isolated and usually down the left or right field lines yeah. and would be separated from the white fans and the rest of the ballpark with this chicken wire. Negro League games, the barrier came down, we uh -huh. sat together. And, and truthfully, watching the best baseball being played at that time, without question, the most entertaining form of baseball How was it being different? played. How was it, it was different? It was quicker. The pace yeah. was quicker. It was exciting. You know, they would bunt that ball, Mark, and they would steal second, they steal third. If you weren't too smart, they steal home. As the late great Buck O'Neill would say, you couldn't go to the concession stand because you might miss something that you ain't never seen before. Major League Baseball was, for the most part, a base-to-base -base kind of game. Guy got on base, you moved him over to you second. The uh -huh, runner. Uh-huh, and then the big hitters came in yeah. and drove him in, and, and that was okay. But Negro Leagues was so quick. It was fast. Mm. And you've seen these athletic, very, well, the, the major leaguers would accuse the Negro League players of showboating. So if a guy went in the hole, dove, flipped it behind his back to start right. the double play, the major leaguers would say, oh, they're just showboating. But as Buck would say, it's only showboating when you can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> it's winning if you can. All right, so we're walking this way. Yeah, Where are we so heading now? Everything is designed to replicate an old ballpark. Mm -hmm. The look, the feel, the sound, all very reminiscent of being in an old ballpark. The only difference is in this old ballpark, you're going to meet some new baseball heroes. And so, folks, you should have known about years ago, right. many people are just discovering these greats. We offer two theaters. This is our grandstand theater to the right here. Mm -hmm. It runs a 15-minute film every half hour, narrated by the great voice of James Earl Jones, oh, yeah. entitled They Were All Stars. Huh. Yeah, and of course, it was a coup for us to get James Earl Jones to lend his wonderful voice. Oh, yeah. Because the kids still recognize his voice as the voice of Darth, Darth Vader. Darth Vader. Uh-huh. And we as adults just recognize as one of the great voices right. in Hollywood ever. And he was in Field of Dreams. Exactly. Exactly. And so now you make your way into the gallery. And as you can see, Mark, the story is set on a timeline of American history. Everything above the timeline is baseball related. Gotcha. What is captured inside the timeline and below are what I like to refer to as historical reflections of things that were happening to African Americans at that particular juncture in our country's history. So really for our visitor, it becomes mm. an all-encompassing history lesson. It's like a tale of two Absolutely. nations. Absolutely. So you not only come here and witness the rise and subsequent fall of the Negro Leagues, but you literally witness the social rise of America simultaneously. Huh. And many of those great changes that occurred in our society socially occurred as a result of that man so beautifully depicted Who's in that? that Kadir Nelson painting. That is Jackie Robinson as uh -huh. a member of the great Kansas City Monarchs. And you would be shocked to, to discover that so many people come here, they had no idea that Jackie Robinson's illustrious baseball career began right here in Kansas City wow. with the great Kansas City Monarchs, and that it was our city and the Negro Leagues that gave America arguably its greatest hero in Jackie Robinson. And Kadir Nelson is one of the most yeah. amazing young artists it's in the beautiful. country. He paints all these other prolific works of art, but he fell in love with the Negro Leagues after seeing our Buck O'Neill featured in Ken Burns' epic documentary yeah. on baseball. And like most of us, fell in love with Buck. Of course, Buck was 82 years old at the time when Ken's film was released on wow. the history of baseball. And I'll never forget the headline in the Kansas City Star says, a star is born at 82. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. All right, when you, when you, let's get technical here. When you're yeah. putting together an exhibition like this, yeah. how do you decide, I mean, there's so much information so much. here. How yes. do you decide 
what to put in, what not to put in, uh, what, how to display it. Well, it wasn't that difficult for us to decide what not to put in. Because you have to remember, when we started, we didn't have a lot. Mm-hmm. And, and I would say, Mark, that 90, 95% of the items that you see on display here, photographs, pieces of memorabilia, were donated by Negro League players and or their families. It's only been in the last five, six years that we've actually started to try to compete for memorabilia. So the thing for us was basically to determine how to effectively tell the story because we were never going to be driven by artifacts. We just yeah. didn't have enough of them. And, but the thing that most folks didn't know was this wonderful story. And, and, and it, it doesn't amaze me now because I've seen it so often. People come in here for the first time and they are amazed by what they learn. They're dismayed by the fact that they just now have an opportunity mm. to learn this. Why didn't I know this when right. I was in school? And the answer is quite simple. American historians did us all a tremendous disservice. They kept this wonderful piece of baseball and Americana away from us. Why is that? Because there are gaps in the pages of American history books. See, history, sad to say, has only been told from one purview. Mm. And, and there are the so Western many, white culture. Absolutely. And there are so many who have contributed to the greatness of this country, and their stories have mm-hmm. never been told. I like to say that if you don't control the pen, Mm-hmm. You don't control the story. Mm. So your story is never written with the kind of accuracy or relevancy that it should be. Our museum is about taking control of a pen and finally telling the story the way that it should have been told years ago. But you know what? We as Americans don't like the fact that somebody arbitrarily decided what you and right. I should know. Uh, give me the facts and let me decide. Let me decide what I want to know and what yeah. I don't want to know. And, and so it is an awakening for the more uh. majority of people who come here because you leave like, how in the world could this escape the pages of American history books? Yeah. How could I not know that the Negro Leagues introduced professional baseball to the Japanese or that advents such as the shin guard batting helmet created in the Negro Leagues, night baseball, originated in the Negro Leagues and nobody knew. Yeah, how could you not know this? Mm. Because the simple fact is, people didn't want you to know. In an age of uh, social media and all this digital stuff that our young people are just like glued to, everyone's glued to their phone, even adults. How do you, this is kind of old school. I love it. It is. How do you connect, do people, are they able to come in here and decompress are they able to put their phones down? Are they able to absorb well, what's going on? Yeah, and, and we do. We, we kept it very nostalgic mm-hmm. for a purpose. We make you read a little bit more than a lot of people are you know, accustomed yeah. to reading in a museum because we wanted you to get a feel for what the times were like. So we take you on a very nostalgic journey. Now, that being said, I think for any history museum, it is vitally important to how you stay relevant. What can you do to stay right. relevant and connected with that ever-changing world of technology and young people and holding their interests? And so what, you, what you'll see, Mark, is that we've started to dibble and dabble into the world now called augmented reality. What's that? And augmented reality, unlike virtual reality, which requires you to wear the glasses, mm-hmm. allows you to use your smartphone or tablet. And so you can actually go to your app store for Android or for iPhone and download a free Field of Legends app before you come to the museum. Field of Legends. Field of Legends. Okay. And so with the Field of Legends app, you can then come in and scan these triggers 
that bring these statues to life. Like a CR code? Or Almost something? like a CR code, okay. exactly. And so, and then it starts talking to you. It, it, it will. There's some video information huh. with that goes along with it. And so when you when we get to the field, you'll see those little placards. Oh that yeah, are on I the see wall. them out there. Those actually bring the statues to life. There'll be video information that comes along with it, so you can use your smartphone or tablet. And so we're testing it now, and I think the reaction has been very positive. So what we'll likely do is introduce this to other aspects of the museum. Wow. So if you're on a self-guided tour, yeah. it will help you bring some of these things that are maybe embedded in the story that you wouldn't necessarily get on your own that you would uh, if I was giving you a guided tour. Well, this is the best tour anyone's ever had. You give me a tour here if I feel like I need to pay something. <laughs> have you ever been to the uh, JFK Memorial Museum I in have Dallas? not yet. Because they know, have these little things like yes, uh, you walk around and carry and then... Headphones yeah. in them. Yes, I've seen those uh, in several different museums. And we but those are kind of old those, school, though. They're kind of old school. And almost everyone has a smartphone now. Yeah. And so, so when I use a smartphone, use that device that everybody has, and, and that way they can just use it, and whatever, whenever they get to one of those markers, they can scan it if they so choose to, and mm -hmm. listen. Take a watch. selfie, text it, put it on Absolutely. Instagram. Hey, Absolutely. I'm down at the Negro that's Leagues it. Baseball Museum. That's it. Huh. And so that's what that's kind of our entry into this technologically savvy world that we live in now, and so we're we're very very proud to be able to introduce that realm to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, right. which was so innovative in its own right. Yeah, yeah, it really was. Uh, you've been open how long here? Since 1997. Okay, so one year before I got here, so 21 years. So now we're standing, I'm st we're still, still not able to get on the they field. Get, get. We're behind a four foot wall here, yeah, out in right field. Yeah, yeah. And what does this signify? Well, again, you're, you're kind of taking that journey and what we wanted people to do is kind of bear witness. Bear witness to everything that these athletes had to endure to play baseball in this country. And then by the time you've gone through that experience, mm -hmm. the very last thing here is now you can take the field. Gotcha. And, and in many respects, Mark, you're now deemed worthy <laughs> to walk out on the field with 10 of the baddest brothers to ever play this game. They were great baseball players. And so, but what you're also starting to see now, we've given you kind of a stage of what the country was like. Segregation was a horrible chapter in this country's history. And so our guests are getting an introduction to that. But what you'll notice is we don't focus on the adversity. No, I don't see anything. No, no. I saw one Ku Klux Klan yeah, picture, but that's yeah. like the only no, negative thing we, I've seen. We focus on what they were able to do yeah. in spite of the adversity. That's the real story. Yeah, these men never cried about the social injustice. They went out and did something about it. And to me, that is what makes this story so uh -huh. awe-inspiring, so compelling. See, now you're starting to see symbols of black life. Because that was important for us as well, because what people don't understand is that the Negro Leagues were the third largest black-owned business in this country during that era of American segregation, but it likely impacted other black businesses at a level greater than any of those businesses that were ahead of them, because those businesses were about their business. Right. Yeah, but the Negro League spawned business opportunities. Because keep in mind, businesses like the street hotel, where we just walked into the, the sitting lobby room. here? Yeah, sitting the room? Sitting okay. room. That's what they call it back then, the yeah, lobby. Sitting room. The lobby. The parlor. Yeah, yeah, the sitting room of the street mm -hmm. hotel. Mm -hmm. And 
The Street Hotel was the black-owned hotel right here on the corner of 18th and Purcell okay. here in the historic 18th and Vine Jazz District. It was one of very few black-owned hotels or motels, certainly the most majestic. So you either got a room at the Street Hotel or you got a room at the Purcell YMCA. Well, this depicts the sitting room of the Street Hotel. So the players, all, when they travel, they stay this there? This is where they stay. Huh. Uh-huh. And so you could walk into the sitting room of the street on any given day, Mark, and you might see sitting in one of these chairs former heavyweight boxing champion oh, yeah. Joe Lewis. Wow. At that time, the fastest man in the world, Jesse Owens. Jesse Owens. Although Jesse Owens would never race the legendary Negro League of Cool Papa Bell. Flat out refused really? to race Cool Papa Bell. Yes, sir. Cool huh. Papa Bell is still believed to be the fastest man to ever play baseball. Clocked him in an amazing 12 seconds. Why didn't he run like in the Olympics? You know what? Satchel Page said, had colleges known about Cool Papa Bell, or if Cool Papa Bell had known about yeah. colleges, he'd have made Jesse Owens look like he was standing wow. still. <laughs> How many bases did he steal? Oh, man. One season, he stole 175 bases in a less than 200. That's why you couldn't leave your seat to go to the concession stand. That's why you couldn't leave. You couldn't leave. Wow. Routinely turned singles into doubles, doubles into triples, Uh balls hitting the gap into inside the park, home runs. Great jazz scene, Lionel Hampton. Absolutely. There's Lionel Hampton. There's Hampton surrounded by members of the Monarchs. Oh, Hampton loved the Monarchs. So much so that our friend Buck O'Neill, would put Hampton in a monarch uniform. He'd sit on the bench and serve as wow. an honorary coach. There's the beautiful <gasps> Lena Horn. Lena Horn. Throwing out the first pitch she was at gorgeous. an All-Star game. Yes, she was. And, and the great Cab Calloway yep. had his own semi-pro black baseball team. So did Louis Armstrong. That's Louis Armstrong. That's Louis Armstrong with his semi-pro team called the Armstrong Secret Nine, based huh. out of New Orleans, as they would say. 1931. Absolutely. Interestingly enough, Mark, all the jazz musicians wanted to be baseball players. All the baseball players wanted to be jazz musicians. <laughs> so it was only fitting they'd come together here at 18th and uh-huh. Vine, where you had the best of both worlds. What about uh, Charlie Parker? Charlie Parker wasn't much of a baseball player, yeah. but a baseball fan. One of my favorite Buck O'Neill stories. He says that the Monarchs had played a game here in Kansas City. And after the game, all the guys are going to go home, get cleaned up. They're going to come back. They're going to meet at a club here called the Subway. And it was called the Subway because the club was literally underground. underground. And so Buck says they all in the club sipping on a little tea. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I can see it now. <laughs> when a kid walks in, got a horn over his shoulder, he wants to blow. Everybody says, let him blow. So the kid, Buck says, the kid gets up on the stage and he starts making some noises that came out of this horn they never heard before, but you had to pay attention. That kid, 17-year-old Charlie Yardberg Parker, wow. who went to Lincoln High School right up the hill from where this yeah. Negro Leagues Museum uh, operates today. But that gives you a, a mm. kind of an understanding, and I hope an appreciation for, again, the entertainment level that was here in Kansas wow. City. All the great stars. You know, you could get a jazz, you could, a jazz artist could get a gig in Kansas City when they couldn't get a gig anywhere else because you had the, the a plethora of nightclubs. Mm-hmm. Almost every restaurant and hotel had live music. So this this area was just wow. flourishing with jazz and then How you had you? baseball. I'll be 56 in June. All right, we're the same age, basically. Yeah. You're a little bit older. Um, wouldn't you love to, I always think when I drive down these 
beautiful boulevards and these homes that were built yeah. in the 20s and 30s. And I thought, I would like for just one day, maybe yeah. a week, yeah. to go back in time. Yeah. I know things weren't perfect. I know we had segregation. No, he, but wouldn't you love to go back in time and just feel that flavor? Yeah. And, and you think about the things that united us, though. Music, sports. Yeah. Music and sports. They have united us in ways that nothing else in mm. our society ever has, maybe ever will. And, and so you come back and you think about what it would be like to be in a time machine and come back. Because as you, as you point out, when you walk around and you look at these images, there ain't nobody saying. Mm-mm. No, everybody's immaculately dressed. They're going to the games. They're having a great time. And people dressed up to go to the oh, games. Oh, yeah. Well, you dressed up to go everywhere. Yeah. It was, as Buck was I saying, miss this. it was <laughs> a dress-up society <laughs> at that time. And yeah. so, yeah, that was a big part of it. This is the old Monarchs uniform? No, we, we were fortunate to have two original. This is original? That's original. That one belonged to Newt Allen. Newt uh, Allen was a star infielder. <laughs> yeah, he really was. And, yeah. and Newt, Allen, Newt Allen was a star infielder, a great second baseman for the Kansas City Monarch. Buck O'Neill used to walk around with a list of names folded up in his wallet of those who he thought should be in the National Baseball Hall of Fame, who he wanted to help get in the Hall of Fame before he passed away. Hmm. Newt Allen was on that list. Mm-hmm. Newt Allen was the most dominant second baseman uh, of his era, black or white. Wow. What's yeah. that uniform made out of? Wool. wool? Yeah, wool flannel, man. Wow. Yeah, they were, yeah, they yeah, were that hot. was hot. Yeah, they- <laughs> and look around the collar there where his sweat stains, stains are yeah. Yeah. on that. Yeah, yeah. We actually, this is one of and the few pearl, pieces. And real pearl buttons. Yes, this is one wow. of the few pieces that we bought in auction, and we were able to get it. It's more difficult now. You know, I the bet. work that we've done, we've almost, we've almost, we, we've given this so much life right. that it makes it difficult for us to compete now. We've driven the price up on these mm-hmm. rare artifacts, and, and most of the stuff now is ending up in the hands of private collectors. Well, do any of them lend to you? Every like, now and then. Yeah. Every now and then. Yeah. Well, that'd be a great thing if yeah, more people a, did that. Let, yeah, let everyone absolutely. else enjoy it. Because enjoy the big it. name at museums do that. That's exactly. So we bought this one, but then this one was donated to the museum. Hmm. This one belonged to a guy named Carol Ray Dinkmoffel. Now, that's a little different. A little bit different. Well, the monarchs had They were so stylish. Yeah. They had different uniforms from different for different years pretty consistently. I like the piping on Yeah, that. the that's piping cool. is beautiful. Wow. And Dinkmoffel was what we would call now a utility player. Which, again, in, in, in today's standards, you know, that just means that he kind of sits on the bench and plays every now and then. Right. But not, not he in the He played two or three positions. He was so valuable because mm. he played multiple positions. You have to remember the roster sizes were smaller. Yeah. So if you got a guy that can play multiple positions, right. he is valued. Yeah. So but what did he play? He played every position except for pitch. Every position? That's a utility play. That's, that's the team. That's the team. <laughs> and, and, and he was so good that... J.L. Wilkinson, who owned the Monarchs, refused to trade Dink Mothel for Hall of Famer Cool Papa Bell. Ah. Yeah. Because, again, with that small wow. roster, you needed that guy That's valuable. that could play multiple positions. Let's uh, finally get out here on the field if we can. Yeah. yeah. Well, we're... Just a few more steps. Yeah, we're not that far away. And here we introduce you to the clown team. There's a great picture of Tony Stone. Oh, wow. Yeah, great picture of Tony Stone, first female of professional baseball. We hear some music in the background. Yeah, this is music yeah, of the air. Absolutely. There's old Satchel. That wall is dedicated to the legendary Leroy Satchel, Satchel Page. Page. What's the shotgun up there? Well, Satchel loved hunting and fishing probably as much as he did play baseball. 
And according to Satchel, he was the greatest hunter and the greatest fisherman in the world. Of course, also the greatest pitcher. Right. Yeah, no, nobody believed in Satchel Paige's ability more than Satchel Paige. He was the greatest before Muhammad Ali was the exactly. greatest. Exactly. <laughs> uh. Look at that wind-up. Oh, yeah. And, and they say he could put that big foot up in the air market. It would block out the sun, man. Wow. But he could pitch that ball unlike anybody ever. And here's my favorite picture in the entire exhibition. That is a young Hank Henry Aaron. Aaron leaving Mobile, Alabama. Oh, wow. To go join the Indianapolis Clowns 1952. Wow. All he's got is a little duffel bag. He told me... The look he, of the crease in his pants. Absolutely. The, absolutely. Everything's absolutely. ironed out. He told me, he said, I may have had $1.50 in my pocket, two changes of clothes in that bag, and a ham sandwich that my mama had made me going to go chase that dream. Wow. It worked out pretty well for the hammer. Where were you when he hit his record home run? Crawfordville, Georgia, yeah. circling the bases with him. Yeah, I was watching I was that. nearly a 12-year-old kid, and I tell him that story. And I tell people all the time, the only person that I'm ever starstruck around is, is Hank Aaron. I'm reduced mm. to that almost 12-year kid every yeah. time he's there. And when he hit record number 715, I'm circling the bases with him <laughs> in my mother's living room. So the sofa was first base. The old uh. TV was second base. She had another little sofa was third base. And her little old rocking recliner was home plate. Oh, wow. And, and I'm circling the bases with my childhood idol. And the first time that I got to meet him was actually 1998 at the Denver All-Star Game. And then in 99, he took his first tour of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And I got to tour my idol, Henry wow. Allen, through the museum. I got to stop here oh, because yeah, I, you know how I am about clothes. Look at those. Uh, these are some of the suits that the the ladies and the gentlemen would wear oh, during absolutely. that time. That is a custom-made, double-breasted, uh, six-button, two-to-button, peak lapel, beautiful serge fabric. And I keep telling my curator, he better keep those shoes on the locker. I too. like those shoes. Those are sweet. Kind of a cap toe with a breathable mesh, mesh fiber uh, exactly. on the vamp. Uh-huh. Gorgeous. Yeah, absolutely. Now, where'd you get this? You know, what the... Ed Sheely, who was our, and his wife Linda Sheely, were our exhibit designers. They found this stuff, man. That is gorgeous. The pick it. stitching on the edges. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and then, and then the and women the ladies, kick out of saying, "Oh my goodness!" You know, with the old, that mink, the fox, they yeah. got eyes in them. Yeah, got eyes in them. Oh my and, goodness! And but they wore those to the game because you had to show them off, man. Oh yeah, no, you know this was that era. Like we talked about, it was the dress-up era. Right. But oftentimes, we were going to Negro League games right after church. Ah. Yeah, we would leave so the church. So you would go to church and, and, and with your church clothes on and then game. straight to the ball game. And but it might be it, 100 degrees. There was nothing recreational about this game. This was the It was a religion event. in and of itself, absolutely. almost. <laughs> absolutely. Huh. All right. We're almost to the field here. Oh, here we have the uh, the beauty of the game. Absolutely. We have Connie Morgan, Tony Stone, and Mamie Johnson. Peanut. Wow. Yeah. Those are beautiful busts. Yeah. Uh, the same guy, Quan Wu, who did our statues, also did these bronze busts for us. Quan Wu is one of the most amazing sculptors in the world who just happens to live mm. in Kansas City. Beautiful. Yeah. You got to come here and see this and see how women uh, were part of it as well. This these, looks like an old locker room. Well, these are our Hall of Fame lockers. Oh, okay. So every time a Negro Leaguer is inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame, we unveil a new locker. I Currently, see. there are 35 Negro League players and or officials who are enshrined in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. 
And then you get a, a jersey to match. Exactly. And so this, again, gives you an indication of some of the beauty of these old jerseys. Wow. And as you can note, the Negro League's jerseys were brilliant. Yeah, yeah, a lot of flash. It matched we call the style it bling of play. Today. <laughs> it matched the style of play. Major League Baseball back then played in white, off-white, or gray. Uh-huh. But not the Negro Leagues. They brought this brilliance to their uniform. Mm. Right before we get on the field. There's old Buck's case. Uh, we dedicated wow. this mark to Buck for his then 90th birthday. Yeah. And he didn't want us to do anything special for him. And it's probably one of the few times that we didn't pay our chairman any attention. We were determined that we were going to do something special for him. And it, it reflects not as much about his baseball playing career, but really the things that he accomplished outside of baseball. Because most of us who knew Buck, we never saw him play. We fell right. in love with Buck O'Neill, who told us about those heroes of the Negro Leagues, and the Buck O'Neill, who so beautifully and vividly demonstrated to all of us that you could indeed get further in this life with love than you could with hate. Mm. That's the Buck O'Neill we all fell in love with. And so that this is reflected in this display. I want to point out in the rear of the case, uh-huh. that is Buck's Presidential Medal of Freedom. Wow. That was bestowed uh, posthumously to Buck in December of 2006, shortly after he passed away in October From by President, President George W. Bush. I was so fortunate to be there at White House ceremonies to see Buck's brother wow. Warren accept his medal the O'Neill family graciously allowed the piece to come home wow. where the world now gets to see this wonderful piece. How many of us get to see a Presidential Medal of Freedom? And, of course, and President Bush was a part owner of the Texas, Texas Rangers, Rangers, so he had a love for baseball. Absolutely. Still does. I would never forget Buck and I walked President Bush and then the First Lady through the museum here on a tour of the really? museum. Yeah. Yeah, it huh. was pretty special. And what are all these baseballs? Now, How many baseballs are here? Man, this is over 200. Yeah. And the name Getty Lee. Getty, Getty Lee. Lee is the lead singer and bass guitarist for the legendary Hall of Fame Canadian rock group Rush. Yeah. Huge baseball fan. I didn't know that. Unbeknownst to us, a huge sports memorabilia collector. He has a substantial collection of stuff. Hmm. Well, Rush was playing a concert here several years ago. And Getty has a good friend that lives here who says, I'm going to take you to see the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Well, like most who come here, he fell in love with the museum. After leaving, this collection of single-signed Negro League player autographed baseballs come up in an auction. He decides that he would bid on them with the intent of donating them back to the Negro Leagues Museum. Well, Mark, he wins the bid. His office calls and says, Getty has a few baseballs he'd like to donate. How would you all like to have them? Well, naturally, we say yes, but we're thinking three or four that he might right, have picked up. So right. turned out to be 200. He has since donated an additional lot of 200. Wow. Now giving the Negro Leagues Museum one of the largest collection of single-signed Negro League player autographed baseballs anywhere in the world. And it's all due to the benevolence of one Getty Lee, a wow. white Canadian rocker. <laughs> yeah, just go. Who would have thought? Exactly. It just goes so that the story has no boundary. It touches virtually everyone who experiences it. You got Hall of Famers in these cases. You got cup of coffee guys in these cases. You got novelty names like this one. Charlie Pride, the legendary country western Kiss singer. Yes, an angel. Charlie good morning. Absolutely. A lot of people did not know that Charlie Pride played in the Negro League. I didn't know that. Yeah, Charlie Pride was an outstanding pitcher in huh. the Negro Leagues who made it into the New York Yankees organization before he hurt his arm. It was after he hurt his arm 
that he fell back on a pioneering country western music career some 72 million albums sold later. We should all have a fallback oh, career. Yeah. Like I need Charlie something Brown. like that. <laughs> Maybe my podcast is my fault. All right, we're finally out on the and field here. Finally make your and way And look to at the these field. statues. Yeah. These are life-size. They are. They are. They're life Beautiful. Size based on the height, weight, data, information that we had on each of, the, each of the athletes. You walk onto the field, you're greeted by another uniform display, and of course these incredible life-size bronze statues of Negro League Grace, anchored, of course, on the mound by the legendary Leroy Satchel Page. But let me introduce you to our all-star team at first right. base from Rocky Mountain, North Carolina. That is the legendary Walter Buck Leonard. Second base, the great John Henry Pop Lloyd. Shortstop from Wilmington, Delaware, the legendary William Judy Johnson. He's ready to play. Third base, the great Ray Dandridge. Hmm. In left field, the legendary Negro League speedster, James Thomas Cool Papa Bell. First and foremost, the greatest nickname in baseball history, bar none. Centerfield, that is Oscar Charleston, whom Buck O'Neill would say without hesitation, the greatest baseball player he ever saw. Now he thought really? Willie Mays, he thought Willie Mays to be the greatest major leaguer, and most people concur, because Mays could beat you everywhere in which you could be beaten. He could beat you with his bat, with his leg, with his arm, with his glove. And of course, Mays' illustrious career began in the Negro Leagues with the Birmingham Black Barons. But O'Buck believed that man in center field, Oscar Charleston, to be the greatest mm. baseball player he ever saw. In right field, that is Leon Day. Leon Day lived long enough to know he was going in the Hall of Fame, sadly died six days later in a Baltimore hospital, oh. but at least he knew he was yeah. going in. Catching the legendary Josh Gibson, who many will call the Black Babe Ruth. But there are others who saw Gibson play, who called Ruth. The white Josh Gibson. <laughs> Gibson was incredible. Hitting on our diamond, the great Latin star from Cuba. That is the great Martin De Higo. Nicknamed mm. him El Maestro, the master, because he could do it all. Played all nine positions, played all nine of them well. The only baseball player in the history of our sport to be enshrined into five different countries, baseball halls wow. of fame. Mexican, Cuban, Venezuelan, Dominican, and in Cooperstown. And again, our ace on the mound. And we can't forget looking in now Leroy behind Satchel us. Page. I can see him back there looking in, the one and only Buck O'Neill. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, we just added the umpire, the late Bob Motley, who passed away in September of last year. He knew that we were adding his statue. Sadly, mm -hmm. he passed away at age 94 just before we installed it. We installed it mm -hmm. in November. So we've now got the official out here mm -hmm. to, to, to referee or, I guess, to umpire this game and Bob Motley is the only umpire to ever throw Buck O'Neill out of a game in what Buck's for? almost 70 years. What did he do? Buck, it was a, a disputed infield fly rule. Yeah. And I guess old Buck said the magic word or the magic words. <laughs> and Bob rung him up. And that night, Mark, they had to sleep in the same bed together. Because uh -oh. there weren't enough hotel right. rooms to go around. And as Buck could only say, I turned my back to that sucker. <laughs> <laughs> but they were uh -huh. great friends you know, mm -hmm. lifelong friends. Bob Motley was one of the early founders of the Negro right. Leagues Baseball Museum as well. And so, but yeah, they all delighted on, uh, Buck called him the blind such and such, and Bob uh, rung him up. You know, that, that's what he was supposed to do. What is it you love about being the director here? I, you know, these moments. Uh, I, I had a youth baseball team in yesterday, and eight, eight and nine-year-olds, and, and they don't understand what segregation was, right. was like. 
but the joy that they had as we walked through the museum and I'm telling them stories and that to me as is as rewarding as anything I think to carry on the legacy of Buck O'Neill mm. can't feel Buck's shoe they're too right. big they're too big but you know the thing is Mark I'm not afraid to walk in Buck's shadow matter of fact to be able to walk in Buck's shadow to me is an honor and, and so to be able to carry the legacy on because I know how hard he worked and how determined he was that this place would survive and be there for future generations to have an opportunity to not only come here and learn this history for its educational merit, but I really truly believe be inspired by the passion, the determination, the courage, the pride that these athletes demonstrated in the face of adversity. Again, our story is not about the adversity, but rather what they did mm. to overcome the adversity. That's the real story. And as I tell our guests all the time, that is a story that transcends race, it transcends age, and it transcends gender. Yeah, our children need to be exposed to these kinds of stories of hope and determination as they try to now navigate some of these landmines that are in front of them, right. you know, sad to say. And a lot of these things that we thought mm. had died have resurfaced again. We're seeing hate at a new level yeah. in our and country. And it's more open than it and was. And it's so much more open. And we thought we had moved beyond that. And so it's great that we have a cultural institution like this that helps bring some understanding and I hope some sensitivity to yeah. what the struggles of others have been in this country but also the fact that this country provides a playing field that gives you an opportunity to succeed. And I think the one thing that I tell people all the time, if you walk away from this experience with nothing other than this, what the Negro League teaches us is very simple. If you dare to dream and you believe in yourself, you can do and be mm. anything you want to be. Now, they dared to dream of playing baseball. They had no idea they were making history. They didn't care about making history. They just wanted to play ball. But again, the passion, the perseverance, the determination, mm. the pride would not only change our sport, it changed our country. And that's our mm. story. Well, Bob, I see those traits in you. And I want to thank you for getting comfortable with Mark Alford. <laughs> thank you for being my friend, and I hope we're friends for a long time. Oh, man, absolutely. We appreciate everything that you've done, and I'm sure we'll continue to do to help promote this institution. And so it's always great to get together. I'm comfortable talking to Mark Alford. He don't make me feel like I gotta kneel at a dark altar. His colleagues are cool, things are jolly and smooth. Anything else, it'll be part stupid and part awkward. Do your homework before you talk to a vet. That way you won't get no static camera from tech. I'm on my own planet. I'm in my zone, damn it.